Psalms 143, Psalms 143. I also would like it noted tonight, just for the record, that I am in Christmas colors. And uh, so I just want that on the record. I, it needs to be verbalized. There'll be an audio record for posterity's sake that I am dressed in Christmas colors tonight. Seth said I reminded him of a spruce tree and uh, like a mighty spruce. That's, that was his words. He said like a mighty spruce. And uh, I think that's I think that's appropriate. Amen. Just stalwart, steady, strong. And, uh, you know, the the evergreen always blooming. Amen. Pleasantly fragrant. Amen. Things like that. And uh, and every year at Christmas, I get the legs cut right out from under me, too. So and uh, we praise the Lord for that. Psalms 143. Let's one final time, hopefully not in your entire life, but certainly in this series of messages. Let's one final time read through this chapter of the book of Psalms. Psalms 143, beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. For I and thy servant. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Help us to study it correctly, Lord. Lord, we know that unless we get a right understanding of your word, we won't have a right appreciation of it, Lord. And without a right appreciation, there won't be a right application. So help us to understand your word tonight. May we be humble enough to be willing to let the God of glory instruct us. Lord, may we be humble enough to recognize that this blessed old book, inspired, divinely preserved, holds the wisdom that we need for our soul and our steps. And Lord, may we cast our confidence in it. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the past four weeks, we have been studying this uh, psalm on Wednesday night. And to set the framework for what this psalm is about and what the psalmist has been discussing, we notice that this psalm is divided into two halves. Uh, The first portion of it, verses 1 through 6, present to us the context of what the psalmist is going through. You've heard me say it before, and I'll keep saying it like a broken record, but if you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. And so understanding the context of the Word of God is key, and understanding the context context of what he says in the last half of the verse is predicated on understanding the context given to us in the first half. And what we find is that the psalmist is in a very distressed situation in his life. 
He describes three things contributing to this distress. The first thing we notice is in the first two verses, he says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplication. So he wants to be heard of God. And then he says this, this is interesting, In my faithfulness, answer me, and in my righteousness. Now, this is not a man that thinks God should hear him based upon the merit of his own good works or his own behavior. It's not a man that thinks that God ought to hear him uh, based on uh, what he has done for the Lord or what he potentially could do for the Lord. But he is asking God to, in faithfulness, answer him, in, uh, in righteousness to answer him. In other words, he's he's putting the precedent of this prayer back on the personhood of God. And I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like a man that's that's praying to God and he's not hearing an answer. Uh, he no doubt had anxiety that this was due to some sin in his life. That was the reason possibly why God was not answering. And so in verse two, he says this, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. In other words, this is a man that is struggling to hear from God. Let's say it this way. This was a season of silence in his life. His prayer life had grown stale. He was praying, no doubt, always as he had prayed, but he wasn't getting answers from God. One of the most troubling things that happens in our life is those times when God just grows silent towards us. Now, you may be so spiritual it's never happened to you, but it's happened to me, and evidently it was happening to David. It should be no surprise, by the way. You say, well, preacher, that's God being cruel. No, hey, listen, a wise man once said the teacher is always quiet during the test portion of the class. Always the teacher is quiet. God challenges us and charges us to put faith in him. But faith can only really live and be active in a situation that is unpalatable or something that causes us to feel strained. And so the psalmist, he's dealing with this season of silence. Verse 3, he begins to talk about external problems he's facing. He says, for the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. The beginning of verse 4, he says this, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. Now he's describing external pressures on He's describing enemies that are persecuting his soul. He's describing this internal struggle that he's feeling as a result of it and the angst and the fear that he's experiencing. We could say it this way. It was a season of silence, but it was also a season of suffering. When things were not going well, I wish I could tell you, like the televangelists do, that things will always go well. But the truth of the matter is they're lying to you when they say that. I'm not going to lie to you. There's going to be seasons of suffering in your life. There's going to be times that things happen that you don't understand, that you can't puzzle out, that you can't through your theology suss out and understand, and times that though you cannot trace God's hand, you're just going to have to trust His heart and know that He loves you and know that in spite of what you're facing, God is still in control. But for the psalmist, this has led him to a place. He uses this word. The Holy Ghost picked the word for him. Verse 4, Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within. He's feeling overwhelmed in life. Boy, Christmas is a season when you can feel overwhelmed. 
Not just because of all the various responsibilities and added tasks and events, but as Brother Jim alluded to, it also can be a very emotionally difficult time. Uh, oftentimes, some of the most precious memories we have with the people closest to us surround the holiday seasons, and then whenever they're not there and we miss them and we are constantly reminded of them, it can add to that burden and that weight, and we can easily grow overwhelmed. That's what the psalmist is dealing with. He's overwhelmed in his life. But then notice what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, my heart within me is desolate. Now the word desolate means lifeless, barren, empty, fruitless. We look at a wilderness or a desert land and we would call that a desolate place. It's a place where life Even if it may live, it certainly does not thrive. And it's a place that is inhospitable and unpleasant to be. And he says this, my heart within me, it just feels barren. It just feels like a wilderness. It feels like I'm not thriving anymore. He hearkens back to the time when he was in verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hand. In other words, he's saying right now, I feel empty and dry inside. He says, I look back at times when it wasn't that way, when I felt your presence keenly, when I felt your strength deeply. And he says, I just wish it was the way it used to be. Verse 6, he says this, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. All this is adding up to the picture of a man who feels spiritually stagnant. We could say this, it was a season of staleness for him. A time when his spiritual life just felt flat. A time when he would go to the oft-visited resources of prayer and of God's word and of confidence in the Lord. But whereas at one time he felt them to be vibrant and living and nourishing, now when he goes to those places and he knows the problem's not with God, it must be with him. That's why he's thirsting after the Lord. But if he's going to be transparent and honest and sincere, he just has to admit that he feels spiritually stale inside. All three of these things add to a man who is in a distressed situation. He's struggling. It's so funny that we struggle to admit we struggle. There ain't a single one of us that don't struggle. I don't care who you are or who you think you are. All of us spiritually struggle from time to time. Now, we can be naive to that fact. We can, in pride and arrogance, try to deny that reality. But that won't get us a step closer to help when we desperately need help. So the psalmist does something I really love. He goes to the Lord and he begins to ask God to do some things in his life. I would say this, that often when we are in this circumstance, we know we need something. But sometimes our head is so cloudy from from the darkness of what we're going through, we don't even know what to ask for. And so the word of God, knowing this to be true, gives us practical steps of some things that we ought to ask for. And so that's what we've done over the last four weeks. We have titled this The Desires of a Distressed Heart. And we've just week by week looked at uh, just every week a different thing that the psalmist asked for. The first week we look at verse 7. And this is what he's asking. He's asking that his prayers would be heard. He says, Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. So preacher, what's step number one? Well, you ought to go to the Lord in prayer. Have you ever prayed for your prayer life? There's nothing wrong with that. Pray for your prayer life. He's struggling in his prayer life. What's the answer to that struggle? Prayer. 
You say, well, preacher, that don't make sense. Well, it doesn't make human sense, but it makes perfect divine sense, recognizing that prayer is our conduit to the Lord. It's how we communicate with Him. It's how we make our requests known. You say, preacher, He's God. He already knows what we have need of. That's true. And still He commands us to ask Him. And you say, well, now, preacher, God wouldn't allow, if He knows I have a need, He wouldn't allow me to go without that need just because I didn't ask for it. Sure He would. Sure he would. He said this, you have not because you ask not. Absolutely. Now you say, preacher, that seems petty. No, that's not petty. That's pity. Because God understands that the greatest thing for us beyond any temporal need we may have is that we draw closer to him. He'll absolutely let you flounder in your prayer life to get you closer to him. Because what you need more than what you're praying for is him. So he's using that to draw you to a deeper relationship. He, he's asking that his prayers would be heard. Verse number eight, he asks that his mind would be sound. He says this, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. He doesn't say, Lord, love me. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. Now, I don't know the psalmist is necessarily saying, give me guidance for my steps. He's going to ask that here in a moment. But I think what he's saying is give me confidence that I am in your will. He says, for I lift up my soul unto thee. All this is a picture of a man in verse 8 who's asking for God to settle his mind. And he understands the importance of having the mind consecrated to God. I'll tell you something, when we don't consecrate our mind to the Lord, we allow a, a gaping opportunity in our life for the devil to, to meddle with our, our commitment and, and conviction and consecration to the Lord. When we don't guard our mind, hey, the mind is an important place. Hey, Paul said with, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. That's what Paul said. Uh, listen, the mind is where imaginations are cast down. We're commanded to have the mind of Christ. And, and we're told to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind is an important place. We ought to consecrate it to the Lord. And we do that by faith. Verse 9, he prays for his enemies to be defeated. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. You may be too spiritual to ask God to defeat your enemies. I'm not. And if you become my enemy, I still won't be too spiritual to ask God to defeat my enemies. All right. Fair warning. And uh, so he just asked God for what what he needs. Now, notice his submission there. He, he actually doesn't say destroy my enemies here in a moment. He's going to. And we'll look at that tonight. But uh, in verse nine, he doesn't. He says, Lord, deliver me. He's putting things in the hands of God. And he's saying, Lord, I'm trusting you with this matter. So he, he asked for his enemies to be defeated. Last week, we looked at verse number 10. He says this, teach me to do thy will. For thou art my God, thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. He's praying for his path to be clear. He's wanting God to guide his footsteps. And we talked last week at length of the importance of knowing the will of God and knowing we're in the will of God. Well, tonight, in closing this series of messages, I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. The psalmist says this, Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. For I am thy servant. I don't know about you, but when I read that, the phrase that immediately arrested my attention is the first two words, verse 11. Psalm says this, quicken me. What does it mean to be quickened? It means to be made alive. 
In the New Testament, we're told that uh, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, we've been quickened together with Christ Jesus. We're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter number four, that the word of God is quick and powerful. It doesn't mean that it is agile or that it is, it is, you know, nimble, but rather what it means is that it is living or alive. You say, preacher, I've never heard the word you that. Oh, sure you have. You, you, sometimes you might, if you're like me, sometimes you gnaw on your fingernails. It's a terrible habit, but you know, pastor's got stress. All right. So don't judge him. And sometimes if, if you chew down a little too far, you'll get into what we call the quick. Now, why do we call it that way? Well, we're saying that is the living, and let's say it this way, that is the pain-filling portion of your fingernail. You've got into the quick, the living part. And so this word's not as unfamiliar as we might think in this context. But certainly that's what the psalmist is asking for. He's not asking for God to make him more swift. But he's saying, Lord, give me life. Make me alive. I thought about what that means in that context. See, in the New Testament, we understand that rightly and readily as the notion of the new birth. It's what happened whenever you got saved. You you got born again, right? That's how the old timers would say it. Born again. You got so born again, it was past tense before it ever happened. Born again. Uh, you got born again. You went from being dead to being alive. But I'd remind you that David has no concept of this. The Old Testament, the idea of the new birth, being born again, was something that was unfamiliar. That's why Christ makes the statement to Nicodemus in the New Testament whenever he talks to him about the new birth. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it. He says, how can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born again a second time? And Christ says, how is that thou being a master in Israel uh, knowest not these things? Nicodemus had no concept of this because it wasn't present in the Old Testament mind, this idea of I'm dead and need to be made alive. So then what does David mean when he says, quicken me? Well, let me just reference you back to an earlier statement that is made in this passage. Look back at verse 3. He says this, for the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. That's how he described it. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Now, when he says that he has smitten me down to the ground, he means he has beaten me down as a foe would beat down their opponent. And then when he describes himself as dwelling in darkness as those that have been long dead... He he has the imagery of the idea of someone that has literally been beaten to unconsciousness and is now lying on the ground, not at their wits, and has lost the desire to get up and to go forward. We would have the picture in our mind of a heavyweight boxer who knocked out his opponent and the ref immediately slides in like he's sliding into home plate and starts counting down 10, 9, 8, or maybe counting up 1, 2, 3 until they end the match. And why is he doing that? He's doing that to find out if this boxer has any fight left in it. And here's what David's saying. I don't have any fight left in me. I just feel beat down. I feel discouraged. I feel disheartened. I'm overwhelmed. I just don't want to get up and go on anymore. You may have never been there, but there's times I've been in there. There's times when I've just wanted to pull the blanket over my head and forget the world even was out there. Times when I've thought to myself, I don't know what quitting looks like, but I'm about to find out. I don't know what it would mean for me to give up on God, but we're about to find out because, Lord, I just don't have strength to go on. What does a man need in that moment? Elijah found himself in that circumstance as he fled 
for his life from Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter number 19. The angel of the Lord appears unto him and, and prepares him a little meal. And, and Elijah, he's, he's, he's told God he's ready to die and then laid down to wait on God to do it. That's what Elijah's done. He said, Lord, just take away my life. And then God didn't strike him with a thunderbolt from heaven. So he said, well, I'll take a nap till God's ready to. And the angel comes along and nudges him, feeds him this spiritual food, and tells him, Arise, Elijah, for the journey is too great for thee. What did he need in that moment? And why did the angel tell him to consume that food and get up and go on? What did that signify? I know I'm deviating a little bit, but you just be patient with me, all right? I, listen, part of the reason that he said that, he was giving him something to put his faith in. The journey's too great for the Elijah. Elijah's sitting there thinking, it ain't a far journey. It's just from right here to right there. I'm done. I'm giving up. I'm laying down. I'm, I, I'm quitting. The angel says, no, you're not Elijah. You're not going to quit. God's got a plan for your life. You're going to eat this food and you're going to get up and you're going to go on out in the wilderness because God's going to meet you out there. God still has a plan for your life. And then he gave him not just a hope, but an anchor point of faith. He tells him something to do that he might respond in faith and obedience to it. Arise and eat. In other words, here's what he needed. He needed faith. And here's what I think the psalmist is praying for. He's praying for his faith to be strengthened. He don't feel like going on. He feels like giving up. And he knows that's not right. And he knows that's not how he should feel. But it doesn't change the fact that he feels that way. He knows that if he's going to go on, God's going to have to breathe new life into his walk with the Lord. God's going to have to rejuvenate his faith and give him the strength that he needs. And so he's praying and saying, now, Lord... I've asked for all these things. I've asked for you to hear my prayers, and you have, Lord. I've asked for you to make my mind sound, and and you've done that. You've reminded me you love me, and and you'll lead me. I've asked you to defeat my enemies, and, and you've given me confidence that you will. I've asked for my path to be clear, and now I know where I need to go. And now he says, now, Lord, I need to get up and go, to get up and go. I need the want to, to go on. And so he's praying, and he's saying, Lord, I need you to breathe new life into my relationship with you. I don't know about you, but there's times that I know all the theology I need to know for my situation. But what I really need is not more instruction. What I really need is rejuvenation. There's times I need, like David asked, for the Lord to restore my soul. And I don't mean I've lost my salvation. I need to get it back. I mean the strength of my soul has been zapped. And I just need strength to go on. And that's what David is praying for. I want you to notice four requests encompass the psalmist's prayer for strength from the Lord. We'll mention these very quickly and be done. Notice the first phrase, verse 11. He says this, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. He prayed for life in his spirit. Now, we have to be careful. We ought to define things biblically speaking. And certainly when we use the terminology spirit, that has certain connotations. The New Testament, the spiritual part of man is that part of himself that has a relationship with God. Uh, part of what happens in the new birth is that the spiritual man is awakened. But when we talk about uh, a man's spirit, we also can use it in the context of a man's attitude or a man's disposition. And David is asking for the Lord to give him a right perspective about himself and about life and asking for him to give him the spiritual rejuvenation that he needs to go forward. Notice the desperate need that he felt. Quicken me. Lord, I need life. Can I tell you something? God never called you to dead Christianity. 
He called you to a living faith. When something is living, it's operative, it's active, it's meaningful. It, 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 it's, I hate to use the word tangible, but maybe in a, in a philosophical sense it is. It reaches out and touches the world around it. And David, he's gotten all these things situated in his life, but now he doesn't merely want those things to live in the abstract. He wants them to take shape and form in his actions and his behavior. He recognizes this, that for all of the theology that he may have tucked away, none of it means anything if it doesn't prompt him to obedience to God. We have a bad problem with speculative Christianity in the West. We have our theology, we have our books, we have our perspective, we have our, have our opinions, we have our convictions, we have our preferences, we have all these things worked out. We are ready to have church. The problem is very few people are willing to. We're ready. We have everything we need. But when it comes the the time, the, the, the crisis moment, the, the pivotal moment where it's time to yield our heart to the Lord and let God claim territory in our life and confess our sins to God, forsake those sins before the Lord, get honest and serious with God about our relationship with Him, then all of a sudden, it's already 12.15, it's time to go home. We have a real problem with getting right up to that place and then never taking the step over into allowing God to take absolute authority of our life. The psalmist says, I've got everything I need. Now what I need, Lord, is you. I need your life. I need your strength. I need for all these things that I have laid in store and set in order to be active in my life through my obedience to you. I think that God wouldn't have gone to such great lengths to provide life if he was okay with us being dead Christians. It is completely disconstant with the notion of New Testament Christianity to believe that deadness is, is, is tolerated or permissible in our relationship with the Lord. That just going through the motions, that just sort of going through the ceremony of it and that being sufficient. Hey, listen, Israel did that for a lot of years. And Christ came and delivered them from it. And gave them a living faith. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He desires for us to have a living walk with him. I see the desperate need that he felt. But then notice the divine name of his faith. He says this, quicken me, O Lord. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that that term Lord means Jehovah. It's the Old Testament national name of God. And that name has a lot of connotations with it. There is a pedigree or a history that comes along with that name. Some of you all, if you say the name Toby, this happens to me all the time. I'll meet new people and I'll say, uh, they'll say, you know, hello, I'm, I'm, you know, Fred or I'm, you know, Lisa or I'm whoever it might be. And I, I, and I'll say, well, hello, my name's Toby. And this happened to me at least two or three dozen times a month. All right. They'll look at me and, and they'll say this, really? I had a dog named Toby. <laughs> No. Well, this Fred never told me that and un, until just now, apparently. And uh, but they'll always say, and here's what they're saying. They're saying, I heard your name and it made me think of my dog. All right. And I've always wanted to look at them. And I, you know, I, I don't know who their name, their name might be Hank. I always want to look at them and say, really? I had a kidney stone with your name. Amen. But uh, I don't know. I'm too nice of a person. But. <laughs> 
Why do they say that? Well, because when they hear my name, it makes them think of some things. They have this fond memory with this dog that they probably euthanized at some point. But, uh, you know, they, they have this fond memory. Names have a, a connotation. They have a meaning, a significance. And when David mentions the name Jehovah, that means something. He's talking about the God that created all things. He's talking about the God that parted the Red Sea. He's talking about the God that shrouded Egypt in darkness. He's talking about the God that stopped the sun in its course. He's talking about the God that gave 15 years back to Hezekiah by literally turning back the calendar for him. I mean, we're talking about an almighty, all-powerful God. And then he says this, for thy name's sake. Let me tell you an uncomfortable truth. When you got saved, your name and God's name got inextricably linked together. That ought to terrify us into a walk of consecration. To know that how I behave reflects on His name. But the other side of that is this. There's things that God will do in your life and my life in mercy, not because we deserve it, but because He's got a name to uphold. And the psalmist says this. What's it going to say to this world if I, as a follower of Jehovah, am discouraged, depressed, disheartened, and defeated? They're going to start to think that you, God, are disheartened, discouraged, and defeated. He said, Lord, if for no other reason, just because my life is a testimony on you, I ask that you would give me life in my spiritual walk. You know, the truth is, it's a bad, the worst testimony of, of Christianity is dead Christianity. I mean, that, that nobody wants nothing to do with dead Christianity except people that have learned to weaponize it and use it for lucrative purposes. Nobody else is interested in it. The world's not interested in it. That's part of what happened. Boy, I, mm, that's part of what happened. You know why a lot of young people are going after all this contemporary garbage? You know why? Because a lot of them grew up in dead Christianity. And it's not that it was dead because it was old-timey. It was dead because it was dead. Because old-time Christianity don't have to be dead. Uh, but they grew up in dead Christianity and they got to a place where they said, you know, the rock music makes me feel something. The liquor makes me feel something. The drugs make me feel something. But church don't make me feel nothing. And so because they had grown up in that dead, lifeless Christianity, they got to a place where not wanting to jettison everything about Christianity, they instead sought some sort of emotional high that they could get from it. Man, what a disgrace. I, listen, I'd rather take the work of the Holy Ghost over emotionalism any day of the week. And and understand that God has a vested interest in working powerfully in the lives of his people. He wants it known that he's the God of the living and that he gives life. So I see he prayed for life in his spirit. Then notice the next phrase. He says this, bring my soul out of trouble for thy righteousness sake. Now, again, we have a bad habit of reading past the word of God and not reading the word of God. What is a man's soul? Well, it's his consciousness, right? It's his personality. It's his thought life. It's it's what makes him proprietarily him. A lost person has a soul. They are a person. They may be spiritually dead, but they have a soul. And that soul will spend eternity in hell if they reject Christ. And when you got saved, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, but you didn't quit having the same personality that you used to have. Some of us, that's a blessing. Some of us, that's a burden. Amen. But you still have that same identity or that same personality, so to speak. And so he says this, bring my soul, my thought life, my personality, my consciousness. Bring me being who I am, Lord. Bring my soul out of trouble. He's not talking about his body. He's not talking about his spiritual life. 
But he's talking about his heart and mind, his consciousness, his awareness. And he says this, bring my soul out of trouble for thy righteousness sake. Notice with me the realm of his prayer here. And I've not told you yet what he's praying for. I will in a moment. But notice the realm of his prayer. He's saying, Lord, my soul, my thought life, my awareness, it is imperiled right now. If I'm not careful, I'll let my mind go to places it shouldn't go. I'll let, I'll let my heart, meaning my faith and confidence in you and, 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 and my encouraged state, I'll let that go to a place that it shouldn't. And Lord, I'm asking you to redeem me out of that trouble. Secure and safeguard my heart and mind for you. Let's say it this way. He prayed for peace in his soul. What was dangerous was not that his enemies were going to destroy his soul, because he couldn't do that. But rather that they would put it in bondage, that they would, that they would through fear and, and through discouragement cause it to be downtrodden and disheartened. And certainly he has already been in that state. That's why he says, bring my soul out of trouble. He's recognizing that the peace of God in his life is an imperative need. That it's not just that it would be a nice luxury, but that he needs to have his mind fixed upon the Lord and he needs to have the peace That results from that. I see the realm of his prayer here. Notice the reason for his prayer. Or we might say it this way. The reason why he would pray this. He says, for thy righteousness sake. To hide me. Could it be that somewhere between verse 9 and verse 12. He started to lose heart. He's already asked this of God. But now he redoubles on this request. And he grows more explicit in what he's asking for. Cut off mine enemies. Destroy all them that afflict my soul. You see, he's already asked God to do this. And he's redoubling on this, not because God has changed, but because he maybe himself is beginning to doubt or grow discouraged at the prospect. Here's the thought that God showed me from it. He prayed for hope in his heart. He feels like he's hopeless. He feels like the enemy is one. He feels like there's no answer. And now he's once again saying, now, Lord, I've asked you to do this, but I'm circling right back around to it and saying of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. Hope's an important thing. We have neutered the concept of hope in modern uh, society. We think of hope as as a default, doubtful perspective. Well, is this going to happen? Well, I hope so, you know. Uh, But the word hope is actually pregnant with confidence and faith. Faith refers to the actions of a heart that is confident in God. Hope refers to the attitude of a heart that is confident in the Lord. It refers the same way that faith acts outwardly, hope acts inwardly. The way that faith reaches outwardly to the world around it and and grabs hold of it and manipulates it and changes it and acts and behaves in an external sense. Hope does that same thing in the human heart and in the human spirit. And he's saying, Lord, I need hope. I need confidence in you. Notice two thoughts that he has here. One, he's trusting God's merciful heart. Of thy mercy, cut off mine enemy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not God not giving us something that we do deserve. And what he's saying is whether or not I deserve to fall and and, and perish in this, Lord, I'm asking you because you are a merciful God to spare me of this. But then notice his next phrase. He says, and destroy all them that afflict my soul. He's saying, Lord, 
Cut off mine enemies. Stop them from harming me. Have mercy on me. And then, God, I want you to destroy all them that afflict my soul. Interesting how you use that term, afflict my soul. I'll tell you this. There's people that afflict my soul that deserve for God to destroy them. But if I'm being honest, there's some folks afflict my soul and probably they don't deserve for God to destroy them. <laughs> Let me give you a good New Testament way of saying afflict my soul. Get on my everlasting nerve. There's some people bug me and there's some people bug you. And some of them deserve for God to cast them down and smite them. Some of them don't. Notice what he says. Lord, I'm leaving it to you. Destroy all them that afflict my soul. God, I'm trusting this matter to you. Let's say it this way. He's trusting in God's merciful heart. Number two, he's trusting in God's masterful hand. Lord, I can't defeat them. I can't destroy them. I wouldn't know how to go about it. David's a mighty man of war. We don't know exactly the season of his life chronologically this was, but at any given time for the vast majority of it, he was surrounded by hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of devoted warriors. But he doesn't say, come on, boys, let's go, let's go whoop them. He says, no, no, we need to leave this in God's hands. God will do it right. God will do it correctly. Man, I'm glad we have a God that's involved in our life. He prayed for hope in his heart. And finally, and I'm done, notice this last phrase. He says, for I am thy servant. Now, that's a simple statement. And yet, it is the foundation upon which this entire psalm is built. David says all these things through 12 and a half or 12 and three quarter verses. And he says, for, because, in light of, in respect of, Lord, for... I am thy servant. Here's what he's praying for. He's prayed for life in his spirit. He's prayed for peace in his soul. He's prayed for hope in his heart. But finally, he prayed for obedience in his members. What do you mean, preacher? Well, now he's not only invoking this status of being a servant, but I think he's also reminding himself of his responsibilities, his station as a servant. Let's say it this way. I, when I read this, I find in it a statement of comfort. I am thy servant. I'm your property, God. I belong to you. I'm your responsibility. I'm your child, yes. But Lord, I'm also your servant. And if you want me to serve you, you have to give me the resources and the room and, and the wisdom to do so. There's times that serving God does not look like we wish it did. Earlier this year, we were doing vacation Bible school, and uh, I called Brother Zach up, and I said, I knew he was excited for the Lord. And I love finding people that are excited for the Lord and then giving them the worst jobs I can find. And uh, But he, he's excited for the Lord. And I called him up. I said, Zach, I said, I got a job for you. Would you be willing to do it? Yeah, preacher, anything you want, you know. Young people say dangerous things like that. Anything you want, you know. Some of y'all learned in the military. You don't just go sticking your hand up volunteering for jobs without knowing what they are yet. But his zeal for the Lord exceeds mine. So, And that's a noble thing. I said, I got a job for you. And uh, he said, yeah. I said, how do you feel about dressing like a kangaroo? He said, well, preacher, if you want me to, I'll do anything that you want me to. And I said, well, and, and by the way, that's the right answer. 
That's the right answer. Not not for me, but for the Lord. For the Lord. And so uh, we brought him that. And I can't remember. It might have been when we were talking on the phone. It might have been later on in person. But I, I made the comment to him. I said, you know, nobody ever thinks this is what serving the Lord looks like. But the truth of the matter is, 99% of the time, this is what serving the Lord looks like. It looks like doing something that you never imagined you'd be doing, that you maybe feel ill-equipped to do, or, or maybe can't even see the direct correlation between what you're doing and the spiritual benefit. I'll tell you this, uh, VBS couldn't have happened the way that it happened without his obedience to the Lord. And we had kids get saved, and we had God do amazing things, and none of that could have happened had he not been willing to be obedient to the Lord. I don't say that to puff up his heart or head or spirit. I say that merely to point out that sometimes serving the Lord don't look like we think it will or should look. But here's what we do in the face of that. Here's what we say in response to it. I'm your servant, Lord. I'm your servant. You see, the problem is we, we want we want the name tag without the responsibilities. We want to be able to look at God and say, God, I'm your servant. Take care of all my needs. But I would say this. This is not only a statement of comfort. It's also a statement of conviction. He's saying, I have purposed in my heart that come what may, I will serve you. That's a far cry from the man who's beat down, bloodied, laying on the ground, ready to quit. What happened? Where, what happened between, between verse number 11, quicken me, O Lord, and verse number 12, I am thy servant? Here's what happened. God strengthened his faith. And now at the close of this psalm, he's willing to say, come what may, Lord, I'm yours. I'll serve you no matter what may happen. Say, so, preacher, what do we need in the midst of being in this distressed season. I'll tell you one of the things help us more than anything is just to remember who we are in Christ and recommit ourselves afresh and anew to devote ourselves in service unto him. Lord, I don't know what it may mean. I, I, I'm trusting you to, to take care of the needs. But God, if you'll see to the needs, then I'll be obedient to you. No telling what God can do with a heart set on him that way. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want to invite you to meet God in the altar. If the Lord has spoken to your heart about some matter, then I invite you to come down, bow your head and heart before him, and let him have his will and way in your life. Here's what that looks like. If he spoke to you about a matter, if it's sin, come down, call it what it is before God, say it to him, and ask forgiveness of it. If it's some matter of disobedience in your life, some matter of, of, of omission, something you should have been doing, you've not been doing. Come down, admit that to God. Ask his forgiveness. Pledge afresh and anew to do whatever that thing is. Or maybe you'd say, preacher, God's just stirring my heart. I'm not sure what it's about. Then come down, meet him in this altar and say, now, Lord, I need to know, what are you dealing with my heart about? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.